Hi, Eric. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? I'm excited. Um, today we're doing um, uh, a nice uh, kind of a tone down, a kind of a, uh, a, a relaxing topic <laughs> in some ways. In some ways, <laughs> in some parts. <laughs> um, it's it's uh, This will be fun. Um, I kind of wanted to, I don't know where you wanted to start, but I actually wanted to talk about redemption at the start of this uh, show. Redemption. Okay. That's quite different. I was going to read you a paragraph from a children's book, but um, I don't, I don't know where you're going with redemption. So that that's intriguing. I have a theory that there are some story arcs. I mean, you're, you're a literary guy, right? I, you I know, do try. You know about like the hero's journey, right? It's very and, popular. Know, Romeo and Juliet and, so you know all these, um, all these, all these things. I think that redemption stories challenge humanity and how we f we feel about each other. One of the, well, I don't know what the right way to, to say it is, but one of the most difficult things to answer is, can a person change? Okay. There's a lyric in Frozen, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. <laughs> it's a good movie. That is a that's a strong case to make, one of the best. But uh, go ahead. Well, listen. If you don't, I mind, like it. I'm not knocking it. <laughs> okay. Is she Elsa? Is a crystallographer like I am? Yes, that's. I guess that's fair to say. You have that She's, personal connection in the same way I do with Napoleon Dynamite. There you go. <laughs> she talks about symmetry. Anyway, so. So there's a lyric though that the troll sing, you know, you know, we're not saying that you can change him because people don't really change. Yeah. I always thought that lyric was fascinating because it it is what you you hear people say say both both ways, right? You know, don't try to don't try to change someone because you know people are the same today as they were yesterday and will be tomorrow, right? Yeah. But the whole idea of redemption it underpins so many stories. I mean, that's the entire point of watching the original Star Wars trilogy is to see Vader be redeemed. And debate whether it was a legitimate storytelling choice or not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I was just having this conversation with one of my classes yesterday. We just finished reading Pride and Prejudice. And we were talking about how the love story one of the things that makes it good is that nobody it's not that one character changes for another character is that they both change to become better. Like both of the characters are redeemed and that's why they end up being a good couple. And there are plenty of other characters who are not redeemed in the story. And you sort of have it both ways, which is exactly what we've been talking about in seminary too. Um, mm -hmm. The Nephites all just got wiped out. We just finished Mormon this week and we started ether. So we're going to see some other people wiped out soon. Um, and it's really interesting, like Moroni, when he takes over the narrator duties, he's so skittish, right? Like, he's like, you need to repent. There's salvation and there's damnation. And I've seen damnation and it's terrible. And you're all, you need, you, you need salvation now. Like he doesn't see any gray, um, which is really funny because he, he interrupts the story of the brother Jared to say, you need salvation because the only other option is damnation right after the brother of Jared spent four years forgetting to pray. And got and then goes and sees Jesus because he has so much faith. So like, stories are complicated, but uh -huh. redemption has to be possible. That's an interesting way to put it. Well, today we're going to talk about a bit of redemption of David O. McKay. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I, so uh, you're going to lean toward into the Catholic thing, I think. I think that, that's that what I'm thinking about. <laughs> okay, can I start with a Catholic story with my little intro that I played? Yeah, pl please do. Did you read the Great Brain books when you were a kid? No, that doesn't sound familiar. So John D. Fitzgerald um, grew up in Utah, but he was not a Latter-day Saint. This book came out in 67, so David O. McKay would have been the president of the church when this children's book was released. Um, I'm going to read you the third paragraph from the first chapter of the first book in the Great Brain series, which okay. are semi-autobiographical. Uh, so he's growing up Catholic in a small Utah town in Southern Utah. Aidenville had a population of 2,500 people, of which about 2,000 were Mormon and the rest Catholics and Protestants. Mormons and non-Mormons had learned to live together with some degree of tolerance and understanding by that time. But tolerance hadn't come easy for my oldest brother, Swain, my brother Tom, and myself. Most of our playmates were Mormon kids, but we taught them tolerance. It was just a question of us all learning how to fight good enough for Swain to whip every Mormon kid his age, Tom to whip every Mormon kid his age, and for me to whip every Mormon kid my age in town. After all, there is nothing as tolerant and understanding as a kid you can whip. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I loved these books when I was a kid. They're, they're really funny. Like, you know, you know the scene in Tom Sawyer where he tricks the kids to paint the fence? Yeah. Where he outsmarts the, it's like brain is always doing that. Um, it's his middle brother. And he's, he's always like, he's always that version of Tom Sawyer. They're great uh, books. Oh, uh, that sounds excellent. Go but on. yeah, tolerance, tolerance can be hard won. <laughs> yeah. It took and love even harder. Yeah. So the, we're talking today about chapter five of, um, David O. McKay and the Rise of Modern Mormonism. So the thing I like about using this book is that we're using it as a, as a starting point for our conversations, right? But we're, we're talking about stuff that is relevant to us and modern issues and things to think about in the current church, right? Yeah. And President McKay may have been dead 50 years, but people don't change all that much. Right. Right. The, the people as a whole. Um, so the first part of this chapter, we're talking about David O. McKay and how he really, how he really kind of changed the perspective that people had of the church by, by reaching outwards, ecumenical outreach, referring to, you know, growing the friendliness of the church to other religions, right? And to other right. neighbors. Ecumenical is a word I think other churches know better than Latter-day Saints do. Yeah. Because we don't really have a great tradition of reaching out. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. Um, in David O. McKay's eulogy, Time said um, that McKay was an affable new image of Mormonism to a world that had previously seen the Mormon leaders as dour, dark-suited figures. <laughs> and he was yeah, the... he was the first one without a beard. Okay, now that's a good fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, since Joseph Smith, I guess I should say. There you go. It's been a long strain. He was perhaps the first Mormon president to treat non-Mormons as generously as members of his own faith. In his own generous, enthusiastic way, McKay had expanded his church horizons and involvement far beyond the abilities of any successor to contract them. If he had not completely destroyed Mormon exclusivism, he has certainly tempered it with his own remarkable vision of a much wider friendly world. Listen, Mormons re <laughs> really were exclusive in, you know, with the whole Utah thing, right? 
right come to zion come to zion yeah and then mckay helped change that image and that reality to be more outreachy right to be more yeah. friendly to the point where nowadays um i we actually have a priority you know just to be good members of the community right sure yeah definitely and that's been the case for decades so we talk about outreach to Protestants and outreach to, to Jewish folks, right? And then we get to the Catholic session, which takes up the most of the chapter because he did not get along well with Catholicism at first. It, it took a while, yeah. <laughs> but then he became different and he changed. Well, and I and think it, how he changed is very interesting. It is. And it, and it also goes to show, and we talked a bit about this when we talked about politics, but President McKay is still a person. He's still connected to the world he grew up in and um catholicism is one of the things americans feared and you know over the course of 100 years there's an interesting stat um from the time the church was um our church i mean the, the latter-day saint faith was established in new york to 90 years later catholicism had burgeoned from three percent of the american population to 19 percent that that's a that's a big jump. I mean, yeah, 90 years is a while, but um, if you're a frog, you notice the water getting hotter at that speed. Yeah, and President McKay was worried about it um, to the point where he made these, some out, there's some outrageous quotes from him in this book. <laughs> <laughs> They're so outrageous. I'm not sure I even want to repeat them. <laughs> um, he was convinced essentially that, that Catholics were as dangerous to the church as communism, which if you listen to our last episode is a big statement. That's pretty dangerous. Yeah. He ch again, he changed. Don't, you know, if you're listening to this and you're a Catholic or Catholic adjacent, <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. There's, it's fine. At the end of the show, you know, or, <laughs> but everything works out. But it kind of makes sense, you know, if you consider um, our claim to um, like the priesthood, um shoot it was right around here i think it was give me a second i think it was at the beginning of the chapter um yes so this was in the improvement era and i don't have the footnotes open so i'm not sure what year this was but uh this would be approximately 1956 um he said if you ask me what's the distinguishing feature of our church my answer would be divine authority by direct revelation there are those who claim authority through historical descent others from the scriptures but we stand out by saying that Joseph Smith saw God. Now, the problem with that, and the reason Catholicism is dangerous, I think, at least in part, is that really, we also claim it through historical descent, right? Our yeah. history is just a couple hundred years old, but we're claiming historical descent in the exact same way the Catholics claim that they are built upon the rock, Peter. Um, he was the first pope. And so really our claim and the Catholic claim looks so similar that it makes sense that Catholics would be threatening in a way that Baptists aren't. Do you know the source of this growth from three to 19% was? was uh, it immigration? immigration. Was it it's all those dirty Italians and the dirty Poles and the, all the <laughs> dirty people who ate garlic and were horrible. It's really funny that you describe it this way um, in a to horribly offensive racist manner. <laughs> because um, thank you because i'd like to i'd like to believe i don't have a lot of practice at that so. <laughs> um jfk was catholic 
right? He was. And, and this, he was the one, when we spoke last week, he was one of the presidents that McKay was a little more skeptical of. Yeah. And I, this, this, um, I don't remember if it said it was because of his Catholicism, but the whole country was, if I remember right. Oh um, yeah. It was a big deal. Like it may, it was a, it was an, which I don't know if this is fair to say. And in fact, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to say that maybe it's not true, <laughs> but it seems <laughs> like it may have, his Catholicism may have big, as big a stumbling block for his campaign in 1960 as Mitt Romney's Catholicism was, I mean, Mormonism was in 2012. I found Mitt Romney's Catholicism very upsetting. <laughs> no, I would, I would go further. I would say that for Kennedy, it was worse. I don't remember. I mean, yeah, there were some, there were some cranks on the far right. Um, but I don't remember hearing anybody on the left saying that Mitt Romney was going to be beholden to, um, Oh, you're right. You know, Salt Lake city and fun fact. Yeah. celebration of the president-elect he's a nice guy um when some democrats did try to say that mitt romney was not reliable because of his mormonism biden leapt to his defense and said no 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 and they were on opposite you know platforms you know they were yeah they were on opposite tickets and um biden jumped I, to his defense probably because he's catholic and he remember he's old enough to remember the whole kennedy thing because he's old i said that maybe it was an obstacle for romney but think looking back on it i actually don't think that it was reconsidering my statement but for kennedy it, it definitely was so there was but, but, but why why in the u.s there was this this was it just because there were so many protestants is that just what is that just I'm, the whole answer wait are you are you asking why it was a problem is because no it's because the pope talks to god and uh -huh. that's crazy aaron uh -huh. the pope if the pope talks to god and you believe that who are you to say no to the pope the pope's going to push you around also, saying, like the Pope was a bugbear in American politics for a while. Like the idea he was sort of, you know, you know, it's sort of like the prodigals of the elders of Zion. Like the Pope was that sort of shadowy figure. Like there were a lot of conspiracies theories around the Pope in the United States. So and then you have a Catholic who wants to be president. <laughs> so McKay kind of followed some of these ideas. Right. Uh, but it was interesting, right, because he had this relationship with a bishop named Bishop Hunt. Yeah. Bishop Hunt was um, the Catholic bishop in, U in Utah, right? And they and he and um, McKay had a, just a lovely relationship as they got to know each other over decades. Um, but even though, though McKay had this relationship and worked with a lot of individual Catholics, he still was prejudiced against the church as a whole and was afraid they were going to come and steal a bunch of Mormons away. <laughs> yeah. And the same time, the Catholics were trying to deal with being surrounded by all these Mormons. And even though they say they're they're not as awful as some of your more president, or not presidential, um, prejudicial Protestant communities, the Mormons weren't as bad as some of them. Like, they're still trying to take away our Catholics, and we don't have that many. Mm -hmm. Leave us alone. <laughs> In fact, when I was reading this chapter, I was struck by how high road, and, and I mean that in a good way, the Bishop Hunt was through all these objections, right? Yeah. The big, there's two big stories in the chapter that kind of talk, that were kind of focus points between this conflict. The first was a pamphlet. Yeah. Let's, let's tell these two stories and, um, and we can talk about how, about what happened and, and so forth. So in this pam this pamphlet was published by um, by some 
Catholic folks and that needed to raise some money, right? They needed to raise some money for some poorer bishops and some poorer um, uh, parishes, I guess you would say, mm-hmm. right? And there, and it was great. It was a nice pamphlet, but it had a problem. What was the problem? The problem was vocabulary, Aaron. <laughs> it coincidentally, I read another story about this exact same problem today. If you don't mind a two-minute uh, digression, oh please. Um, when John Kerry was Secretary of State, he traveled to Ethiopia. And uh, one of the things he did while he was there was he complained that journalists were getting arrested because America, at least in theory, does not believe in arresting journalists. Journalists should be allowed to do their jobs. And he said the United States was upset about it. And um, after all the pre-approved questions, he called on a young Ethiopian journalist who um, was of the same age and demographic and style of the sort of journalist who'd been arrested and called on him. And the kid asked, like, um, so are are you just saying this or are you seriously saying this? Now, as it ends up um, among English speakers in that part of Africa, um, if you ask if somebody's serious, you mean, are they going to perform an action? That's what it means. Um, Kerry was offended because he's a very serious person. Um, some people feel he w- did not successfully become president because he was too serious and people couldn't relate to him. Hmm. He's like, of course I'm being serious. He, he was offended. He didn't understand the question uh, because serious in Ethiopia means, are you going to commit an action? Whereas serious to an American means, do you mean what you're saying? And, um, and that led to, that led to a misunderstanding. Uh-huh. And but this one I think is better. <laughs> the name of the pamphlet was A Foreign Mission Close to Home. And Mormons read that pamphlet and were like, the title of that pamphlet, and they went, they went nuts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because mission, as, as the writers point out, has one meaning only. It means you're going to be proselyting. Mm-hmm. You're going to be trying to convert people, to which is not what it means to a Catholic. What's it mean to a Catholic? Well, in, in the context of the pamphlet, I'm quoting now, mission meant a rudimentary underfunded parish. This is why I assume, I didn't double check this, but it makes sense. This is probably why the missions in California were called missions because they were founded in like 1730 and there was not a lot of money coming in from the Vatican to support Santa Barbara. Um, you're getting by with what you can. And um, that's how the Catholics felt in Utah. There weren't that many of them. They were having a hard time, you know, filling seats and filling, filling coffers. They were a mission. Um, just Actually, you know, you know, you know, Aaron, I just realized in Latter-day Saint uh, vocabulary, like if you talk about um, if there's a place where there are no stakes, it's a mission. And that's kind of a similar meaning, even though the mission is run by proselyters, um, it's a mission because it is a scarcely populated, underfunded, well, probably not underfunded because, oh, I don't know, in the old days, certainly. Nowadays, there's plenty of money to go around, but um, it's kind of a similar idea, but that it can't be divorced from that idea of proselyting. That's right. So anyway, this just went off like a bomb among the... uh among the LDS folks. And um, it took Bishop Hunt a lot of work to talk down everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And what's great about this is that it rec- 
is that there's a paragraph here about a double standard that was never never discussed, right? It says, mm -hmm. okay, in retrospect, okay, so what happens is that, you know, Bishop Hunt, Bishop Hunt goes and meets with McKay several times, if I understand right, to try to explain what the pamphlet was trying to do. You know, that the, they, you know, they, they stopped distributing the pamphlet. They weren't trying to say they were going to go convert a bunch of Mormons, right? Instead, they were just trying to earn a bit of money for this one area. Just, you know, everybody, everybody talked down. While they were, while he was doing this, you know, there were several talks given at various Mormon churches about, you know, war, don't, you know, pay attention to these Catholics and what they're doing. <laughs> don't <Yeah>. get fooled. <laughs> okay, so here's the paragraph that I want. So eventually, he does succeed. President uh, Bishop Hunt does uh, succeed in figuring, in talking everybody and calming everybody down. In retrospect, it is clear that McCain and his colleagues badly and unfairly misinterpreted the pamphlet and subsequently took unwarranted and damaging action and retaliation. Hunt was justified in his irritation and showed commendable integrity and charity in initiating the healing process. McKay accepted Hunt's explanation, but only reluctantly. Furthermore, a double standard was in effect, although it never entered into the discussion. That is, McKay and his colleagues were vehemently opposed to any attempt by the Catholics to proselytize within Utah, yet made no apology about sending thousands of LDS missionaries to Catholic strongholds within the United States and foreign countries whose expressed intent was converting Catholics to Mormonism. Ultimately, McKay did exactly what he had accused McHunt of doing and took Mormonism to the gates of the Vatican when he reopened the Italian mission after a hiatus of a full century. Right? So yeah. I, just I just thought this paragraph was, was awesome. Um, because it highlights how charitable Bishop Hunt was to not bring this up. <laughs> yes. That would be so difficult. Um, I think everybody hates a double standard that you're on the wrong side of. Yeah. <laughs> um so yeah but but it but he did get he did smooth everything over and the relationship became corrigible corrigible no no well i guess i guess so that would be the opposite <laughs> of incorrigible i thought you meant cordial but now I, I, i'm not sure that you're wrong actually <laughs> i did mean cordial <laughs> so that that was this was the first this was this was the and this so McKay didn't change his mind at all because of this event yeah. from what we can say, right? But it, I'm sure it helped along the lines of him changing his path and his attitudes toward, towards Catholic Church. Yeah, you know, I think one of the key lessons of this chapter will be, and, and the Bishop Hunt example might be the most prominent one, um, ultimately these big rifts between peoples are only ever solved by relationships between individuals. Okay, listen, Eric, this is all I want to talk about. This is the entire point of me wanting to bring all these stories up. I, I, we talked about it last time, but I feel like I haven't talked about it enough. How to heal the divisiveness within our, our country, our church, our families, regarding politics right how on earth can we change 
how can we redeem ourselves from this conflict, right? But I don't want to talk about that yet. I want to okay. go. I want to. I want to go through the history a bit first, and then come back to that. All right. You you were inhaling your breath as if you wanted to speak to that point. Well, I have I have a two prong theory from President McKay that I think will answer your question. Um, and he didn't always follow this. The the way he treated the Catholics at the beginning of our story is a good example of of when he fell short of his own ideals. Um, but I think this answer addresses both our last episode and this episode in terms of how to solve this problem. Okay, great. Let's talk about the second incident. Second incident. This is the incident that actually precipitated change. Okay. Um, and it gives us a chance to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is the Bible dictionary. Oh, okay. I love the Bible dictionary, top to bottom. I just think it is so much fun to read the Bible dictionary, right? Yeah, I, I have felt that way. There's a section- I just quoted, I, I quote the part on prayer a lot because I think it has some really good phrasing. That's exactly the one that I was gonna bring up. Oh, really? Yeah, the wow. part on prayer says that the goal of a prayer is not to ask for blessings, right? But to align yourself to the word of God and secure for yourself blessings that are already set up in store for you, but you just has to ask for them, right? That is exactly the part I referenced. <laughs> I love it. We were it. talking about the brother of Jared earlier this week. Yeah, just that, that, that sentence, those phrases have guided my own approach to prayer my entire life ever since, well, probably my mom uh, showed them to me. <laughs> um, it's just awesome, right? The, the idea that you have any hope of changing God's mind on an issue. <laughs> That's not the point. Right. <laughs> um, so that section on prayer is fantastic. The fun thing about this conversation is where the Bible dictionary came from. So for those that don't know, the Bible dictionary is part of the LDS standard works. No. Right. Okay, it is right. published in the same book with them, Thank but right. it is you're not right. part of the standard works. We actually did an episode on canon, right? We did, yeah. We yeah, probably that, talked about well, this exact bit of non-scripture at that point. I'm not convinced that we did. Um, we've, I think we've talked about it before, but maybe okay. it wasn't that episode. I mean, do we regard the Bible dictionary as the word of God? Well, you know, that depends. Um it is not canonized, so it does not reach that standard. But we do believe that, you know, the Lord teaches people um, through the mouth, you know, all the best books. Bible dictionary would seem to qualify as fitting within the best books. Okay. The crazy thing is that what we're going to, what, the, what, um, what Price and Wright, the authors of this book do, is connect the Bible dictionary all the way back to the event that changed President McKay's whole stance on on the catholic church and i just think it's amazing that these two things are connected in such a way i think it's really cool okay do you want to tell the story uh no i don't oh, i told okay. the last one i think <laughs> i think i told the last one okay you actually brought this up last time it has to do um, with the book mormon doctrine yes we did bring that up last time uh -huh. i know where my copy is <laughs> okay so you actually have a copy yeah it's in the garage it's a what, little hidden from my kids what edition is it uh, it is not the first edition, mm -hmm. which is the one we'll be talking about. The first edition was a problem. 
Yes, yes, it was. Mormon doctrine, Wikipedia. All right. So Bruce R. McConkie wrote it. He was not an apostle at the time. Oh, I want to say something about Bruce R. McConkie before we jump into this. In the same vein where I'd not, I'm not convinced we did Elder Ta Ezra Taft Benson justice last time. And by talking about how much I love that man and yeah, how, we didn't how get to different talk about his presidency was than his early life. Right, or how how impressive his work in Europe was at the end of World War II before he became a rabid anti-communist. Right. So Bruce R. McConkie wrote a talk called, um, is it The Power of Gethsemane? I don't know the title of the talk, but I believe I know which talk you're talking about. It's the about. Gethsemane It'll talk. It'll be in the notes. Yeah, every, every Mormon knows the Gethsemane talk because it has language that will move me to tears on a drop of a hat. Just there, there's some phrases in that talk, right, about Christ and the atonement that'll get me every time. It's like watching Finding Nemo, right? Every <laughs> time at the end of the movie uh -huh. when Nemo's holding his child uh -huh. and he thinks his child is dead and it flashes back to his child and an egg uh, especially now that I have kids of my own yeah. right <laughs> that hits me like a ton of bricks every time yeah same thing with the the, the Gethsemane talk by Bruce Amarconkey it's one of the most powerful things that ever has been spoken or written I believe he said it as an apostle near the end of his life he also wrote this book called Mormon Doctrine. <laughs> and nobody's perfect. Uh huh. So Mormon Doctrine was a encyclopedia. Oh, hey, Aaron. Mm -hmm. uh, distraction. Did you know that uh, Bruce R. McConkie's brother, his older brother, just died a couple weeks ago? Oh, okay. Oscar McConkie. Oscar McConkie. Yeah. I did not know that. He was um, an interesting fellow. Very different from his brother, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't think Bruce R. was a famous Democrat, for instance. Ah, fantastic. Um, but yeah, interesting, interesting guy. Um, the Mormon doctrine was this kind of encyclopedia where you could go by category and parts of it became the Bible dictionary. That's the connection. Yeah, Bruce R. was put in charge of writing the footnotes for the standard works and putting together the topical guide. I, or I, I don't know if he was in charge. I believe he was. I believe he did most of the writing for both the footnotes and the topical guide and the Bible dictionary. He had a team, but um, yeah, they, these things are connected referring to the first edition of Mormon doctrine. So church leaders, this is reading from Wikipedia, were surprised by the publication since he had not asked permission and was not asked to develop such a work. They responded that while they applauded the attempt of the book to fill a need, it used a harsh tone. Apostle Marky e. Peterson said it was full of errors and misstatements and, was, and it is most unfortunate that it has received such wide circulation. Right. Marky e. Peterson enumerated 1,067 errors that affected most of the 776 pages of the book. It has errors upon errors, statements about doctrine that are untrue and have been disavowed by the church. Yeah, and even things that are clearly opinion are stated as if you just, you know, like playing cards is a famous example. You have playing cards in your house. Welcome to hell, pal. That's right. Um, it has things about, um, you know, uh, blacks and the priesthood, that about psychiatry, about, you know, um, birth control um, and evolution. And um, yeah, and uh, it was read by a lot of people. Um, and um, 
it later editions corrected some of these things. And by the time the Bible dictionary came around, none of it was in there. None of that stuff was in there. Well, the Bible dictionary didn't, you know, doesn't include things like playing cards. So that makes it a little easier. <laughs> but Bishop Hunt got a copy of it. Yeah. And it doesn't say nice things about it. didn't it say does, nice things about the Catholic Church. It does not. In fact, the things it says, I'm just not even going to repeat here because I don't think it's really worth saying. Worth covering. No, but they are um, unkind at best and mm -hmm. cruel, I would say. Bishop Hunt came in tears to um, a friend of, of McKay's. Uh, he paid a courtesy call to newly elected Congressman David S. Keene to congratulate him on his victory. The experience was bittersweet for both men. Hunt carried a copy of McConkie's book, and with tears in his eyes, he told King, a devout Mormon, we are your friends. We don't deserve this kind of treatment. He... Um... He expressed similar things in probably similar tones to McKay. And yes, he did go to McKay. We do know that. Yeah. And, you know, faced the first presidency, stopped publication of the book completely. Yeah. And they um, profusely apologized. And in the after, so reading again, in the aftermath of this enormous embarrassment caused the church uh, and to himself by McConkie's book, McKay quietly abandoned his private criticism of Roman Catholicism for the remaining decade of his life. He had come to realize that Bishop Hunt was a true friend without a hidden agenda, and he valued that friendship greatly. He changed. His attitude changed. He, yeah. um, he, had, he realized he was wrong, and he made amends. Yeah. This rift between these two churches was healed. And nowadays we go in on joint efforts often between our two churches. Um, it, is, it is so fulfilling. So we've read so many parts of this book now over this last season. And so many times we've talked about how this, the amazing things that David O. McKay did. And to me, this is one of the most amazing that at age like what um you know 86 he's pretty old at the time to to change like 59 maybe is when this happens so yeah he's pretty old um how do we heal the divisions that we see around us this is going to be a recurring theme um it was last week. It was this week. Um, there's some other chapters where this is going to come up. It really, this is relevant to the missionary chapter also. Um, you know, Let me ask the first question. Should we okay. heal some of the rifts that we see? Yeah, I think that is the entire purpose of Christianity. I think that's yeah, what I Jesus agree. came to do. I set that up as a straw man for you to knock down. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I really feel I, I somebody asked this week on Twitter. I it was phrased in such a way that I think it was maybe the opening gambit to trying to figure out a research question that they were going to do some serious research on. And the question was like, um, what would it take for you to think that 
uh, church policy on LGBTQ people is wrong or something like, I forget the exact phrase of the question, it doesn't really matter. Um, but ultimately, I think the point is the church, like a person, like anything, um, when it causes, it brings more love and goodness into the world through its actions, it is doing the work of God. And um, when it isn't, well, that's because you grew up thinking Catholics were bad people and it took you and it takes a while to figure out that that's not true. Um, I think that ultimately Jesus was right by their fruits. We'll know them, right? This is, this is a basic principle of Christianity. And when you bring, when anything brings goodness into the world, we know we're doing it right. And if not, then we know we are not quite aligned with the will of God. And this is not me commenting on any particular doctrine at all, but it's talking about the way we as a people, as a church, as individuals, as human beings interact with other human beings in our world. If, if it leads to division, we're not doing it as Christ would have us do. There's something off. The issues of the day, the matters about um, all kinds of, you know, I could list all the issues, but you know them all. Every single one I know. Every single one you know and you're an expert on. Um, That's why I'm so delightful to talk to you. <laughs> it just seems like they've crept in to all all aspects of life where they didn't used to be in my opinion in my view right i i don't know if that's true but i think they're very very visible right now is this is this is this because why is this a social media thing is this a social dilemma thing a network, what is a social network dilemma? What is that movie on Netflix that I haven't watched yet, The Social Dilemma? I, I, I don't know. Is this a pro product of algorithms driving us apart, apart? Well, that's probably not irrelevant, but the algorithms just exacerbate the way we already are. We form communities, echo chambers. Yeah. Um, do you want to hear my two-pronged answer now? Yeah, hit it. So keep in mind that my two-pronged answer only works if there's an undercurrent of charity flowing through this entire plan of mine. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, so earlier in the book, there is a chapter called, um, let me make sure I get it exactly right. It's chapter three, it's called Free Agency and Tolerance. And it deals with these very questions we're talking about. And one of the characters we'll meet when we get around to doing that chapter is a fellow named uh, Sterling McMurrin, who was a faithful Latter-day Saint, a very devoted member of the church, very different in his way of being a devoted member of the church to, say, your average apostle. Um, and he, there were, there were leaders in the church who um, thought he should not be a member of the church, and McKay would frequently defend him. And, and I want to get to why. McKay defended him. And it comes down to this topic we talked about last week when we were talking about communism and what McKay thought the problem with communism was, is that ultimately everyone has free agency. And I think this is where he messed up with the Catholic theme. He he failed to see that Catholics should have the same agency a Latter-day Saint should have. Like that, that was something he was overlooking without realizing it. And when you really give people their agency and let them choose and love and trust them enough to choose well, like they're not gonna do it all the time, obviously, 
but ultimately you can't build anything real without granting people their agency. You can't compromise other people's agency in any way and heal these rifts. You have to let people be themselves and you have to accept them for what they are. Um, even if you're disappointed, even if you disagree, because the only way forward is to love them and to grant them their agency. And that brings us to the second point. Um, in a previous season, we talked about whether or not our faith is a universalist faith in that everyone is eventually saved. Um, and I'm gonna quote now McMurrin. Uh, this is something he wrote after, uh, hang on, actually, I believe this was written, but in the, in the paragraph introducing, it doesn't say whether it was written or not. This actually comes much later in the book, so I'm cheating a little bit. This is on page 379. Um, McMurrin says this about, as, as part of his um, elegy for McKay and, and the role that he played in the church. He says, universality as a religious ideal is possible only where there is an authentic conception of the reality of the individual, a genuine concern for his dignity and worth and a full measure of human sympathy. I believe that the universalism of President McKay, his identification with humanity was grounded in his respect and concern for the individual, his reverence for the freedom and autonomy of the moral will, his, his sympathy and compassion for every person. We may hope that future historians will find that his ideal was in fact the beginning of a new era for the church. Um, and I think this is the key, like Brigham Young did not believe in granting the saints agency, right? He, he even had a plan to change the written language so saints couldn't accidentally read something out of New York. Um, President McKay really believed in this core Latter-day Saint concept of agency and giving it to people. And he wasn't always successful at living and, and acting according to this belief he deeply held, but he really believed that you had to let people choose for themselves and if you did, good things would follow. And I think what we see in his life is every time he succeeded to live up to his ideal and really grant people the right to be themselves and who they are and what they believed and act according to their own conscience, that's when things got better. And that I think is the big lesson that we can learn from President McKay. You give people agency, you believe in like a universal worth of each human being, even if you disagree with them, and you do all that with charity, you're going to heal these rifts and the world is going to become a better place. There's, I mean, it sounds a lot like two, two parts. One is the Book of Mormon phrase where, you know, people do not generally choose, you know, we're talking about voting, right? Essentially don't yeah. generally choose the keen men. an option. The, the, they usually the, lose. And, yeah, right. They don't generally choose the bad option. And the other one is the quote from Joseph Smith, right? I teach my people. Correct principles. Correct principles and they govern themselves. Right. It's an, uh, well, your argument is an espousal of those two beliefs. It's a really core part of my faith as a Latter-day Saint. I, I feel like I'm a McKayite in this way. <sighs> One of the best parts about the West Wing, Eric. <laughs> okay, okay. Really, What's it streaming really on, Aaron? <laughs> it's on. Uh, it's on Netflix. Uh, I don't you can watch the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? Really stresses how government can really do good things, right? 
how most people that are working, you know, in these positions are just trying to help, right? And um, if you look at like local politics, right? If you look at, if you go and you read your voters pamphlet, you're not trying to decide between, you know, a good person and a bad person. You're trying to decide between two people that are, have lived awesome and interesting lives, right? And are only, and are trying to make helping people a career. Yeah. Right? Yeah, almost always that's for, true. For not much money. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that your words about just now, about um, agency are exactly the things that I, that I need to hear, right? Because I genuinely believe that good people will make good decisions. What I don't know how to reconcile is what you said with some of the people that I see on the news that I genuinely see as bad actors and I'm worried about them making policy decisions. And what I just said was a carefully politically neutral statement that could be applied <laughs> to either side of the aisle without revealing my own political leanings. But to someone who's listening to this show for the first like two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but how do I do that? Because I think that you're right. Give more good, give people, give more people power and more, since more people are good, more good things will happen. So I think I may have just hit on the solution. Okay. Let's, um, let's hit it and then we'll publish it. Okay. So what people don't know is that we just lost 20 minutes going nowhere with this, <laughs> but I, I think I figured it out. I think the issue isn't that we give people who may or may not be good actors, their full agency It's that we don't surrender our own agency while other people are allowed to act. We also act. We don't just talk. We stand up and do good things. We are, we are Christian in every positive sense of the word. We, um, we teach and preach and are kind. We um, take care of the poor. We take care of the widow and the orphan. We care for people and we act according to our own agency and fight for right principles. Giving everyone their agency doesn't mean that we've somehow lost ours. Agency is not a zero sum game. I like what you're saying. And I also like the idea of getting more power to do so to more people will just generally improve. I mean, the, the one of the theses, theses, thesis I? <laughs> However you want to say it's fine with me. <laughs> of our show, based on our first season episode, was that the world is getting better, not worse, right? Yeah. We, re we recorded that before the pandemic and before the fires and before, you know, the, the, all, the, <laughs> all, the, all the things that have happened in 2020, right? And 2020 has been a year where it's been hard to argue that things have been getting better, right? But it's just a year, right? It's just mm -hmm. a blip. If you look at the, if you make the measurements of overall happiness in the world, I think maybe it took a tumble over the last year. Um, it feels like we step backwards in a few ways. It feels hard to connect to people when everything is over Zoom, but... It'll pass. More people will get the age. More people will have more freedom. Yeah. To exercise their agency. And because people are generally good, 
the world will get generally better. Okay, so next time we're going to do Revelation and Prophecy and some of the Prophet and Man. So those are chapters okay. one and two. All right. And uh, all right, that's it. Bye, Eric. Yay.